0: Are you ready to learn? Because my super experienced guests are ready to share some really valuable information. Make sure and listen all the way to the end to get help and support. So let's start with the best audio experience.
1: Hello, guys. Welcome. Welcome to our show. Today we discuss about organization, how you can manage the process, how you can get a lot more results. And we are going to discuss a book, Organizational Velocity. I'm so excited to discuss this topic with Alan Evelyn. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, big pleasure. You know, for me, it's important to learn about this topic. Because I love reading books, I love controlling the process, management, hiring, uh, many things. So I'm so excited to learn about that because I know that I need to improve what I have to update and go ahead. Before we start, just tell more about yourself, experience, background, and why you decided to share with us about this topic.
0: Okay, great. So, so I spent um, 27 years at UPS in a variety of uh, leadership roles and marketing uh, strategy, and my last role was in corporate venture capital, which I absolutely loved. Um, but there were questions um, that I had as I went through. As everyone goes through, in any large organization, um, innovation and keeping up with um, you know, new advancements is always really difficult. Um, especially when the uh, innovations are disruptive in nature. So you know, I, I split out diff- I look at innovation in two separate groups. One group is sustaining innovation. So innovations that help you do what you do today for your existing customers just better, quicker, faster, cheaper. And so in the supply chain area where I came from, that would be investments in technology to provide better visibility to packages, um, uh, technology that helps you process packages through a hub facility faster, or something like that. UPS and most companies are really, really good at that, those types of innovations. Because it's really easy to say, OK, if I can improve productivity by 30%, I can do a financial calculation around that. However, if I'm doing an innovation that may be a new product or new offering um, that uh, that people are going to respond to, um, it's very hard to predict human behavior. Uh, in advance you have to do it you you can spend all the time you want researching it but you have to do it those types of innovations in organizations are very very difficult and um, and so i ran into this kind of challenge at, at ups and talked to other people at other companies in my roles and and found that you know this was a issue that that was fairly widespread. So um, when I uh, left UPS, I I took early retirement in 2019. I had been going to school to finish my PhD, and I was focusing on a central question. And that question was, we've known about disruption for 20-plus years. Um, Ever since Clayton Christensen wrote a seminal book called The Innovator's Dilemma. And since that time, we've had books and seminars and countless examples of disruption. Yet, the Fortune 500 continues to turn over at an accelerating pace. Why is that? what is it about organizations that keep them from learning these lessons and so that's what i i I focused on in my uh, dissertation Um, and i took all of those learnings and did two more years of research that's what went into the book organizational velocity that we're going to talk about uh, today but i do want to start with um kind of the foundation was uh this gentleman uh, clayton christensen who noted management scholar um who wrote who wrote the innovators dilemma and i don't know if if anyone's seen glass onion it was so funny um that movie that just came out um they they talked about disruption um and I was, oh, my gosh, I was going nuts because they were using the concept of disruption uh, incorrectly. And that turned out to be a, a, a plot line in the book. And they actually referenced Clayton Christensen. Well, he happened to be on my dissertation committee. And in one of my conversations um, with him, I, I was very animated. I was telling him what I wanted to do, and, and he said, He said, Alan, you have to understand, uh, first of all, that God didn't create data. So I paused. I hesitated. I really didn't know where he was going with that. And he, he went on to say, it would be a great service if you could help others like yourself, other executives like yourself um understand that the greatest source of their future success is the data that has not been created yet and honestly when he said that to me i really didn't understand what he was talking about i shook my head and i said oh and i i get it but i really didn't get it and i I had to think about it and I thought about it over the next few days and weeks. And and the more I thought about it, the more clear it became when I thought about all of the plans that I created with teams of dozens of people spending hundreds, if not thousands of hours to create these detailed plans that have that we present to executives to get funding for projects and we come across like we have this this great knowledge because of all of the research we did about how about how successful this is going to be and when the organization will get a return on their investment and and it's all bs and and this is why and it's not it's not on purpose. People are doing their best. They're putting together their best guess, but the reality is anything that's new, you can do a five-year plan, but as soon as you lay out the first initiative in the first year, it sets off a variety of unexpected reactions in the external environment from both customers and competitors that then change what you should be doing next. But if you've ever been in an organization, it's not that easy. Because if you ask for half a million, a million dollars for a project, and uh, two or even two hundred and fifty thousand for a project. And you're executing it. And you go back six months later for an update, and you say, "Well, now that we've started the project, we uh, we found out we were wrong in our initial assessment as we started getting feedback. And we thought we were going north, and we really need to be going northwest." And that's going to change the budget, and what we do, and so on and so forth. Um, If you do that, people start to question your credibility. Well, if Alan didn't know what he was talking about six months ago, why do we have confidence that he knows what he's talking about now? Um, And it it creates this challenge within uh, organizations. and. and so what i tried to do is take this challenge from clayton christensen and go out and talk to some of the best minds in the business and i i talked to corporate leaders for like fortune 500 leaders leaders of startups and then colonels and generals in the military and and you might ask well why colonels and generals in the military well they um, they are very attuned to making high stakes decisions under conditions of uncertainty so how do they do that and um, and actually some of the most um, transparent interviews that I had let's put it that way were were military leaders so that's kind of a that's kind of an intro to kind of what got me where I was, what got me into um, this idea of organizational velocity, and 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 so I'm I'm spending a lot of time helping organizations um, that are facing these issues, and then um, and then kind of my other life, I am also uh, a distinguished fellow at the. Um, University of Tennessee Supply Chain Institute, which is supply chain, as you know, since COVID is going through massive disruption. And so I spend a lot of time with companies on the supply chain side, uh, applying some of the principles from organizational velocity. So how's that for an intro?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome experience. I love it. Love it. Love your experience. You know, uh, you mentioned a few times about disruption, you know, uh, I, l- I love it because, you know, um, in my company, I always tell my employees, you need to change generic methods. You need to uh, provide something new. You need to test. Sometimes we can fail. That's okay. You know, uh, for me, uh, it's really hard to count how many times I fail a lot. I keep doing this. But, you know, uh, it helps to fight something new, to update what we have, to uh, provide much better services for my clients. And can you tell about disruption? You know, for example, uh, I know that people, uh, most people uh, don't like it to disrupt what they have because uh, you need to replace and you don't know exactly it will work or not. Uh, But I like your quote on LinkedIn, uh, thriving on disruption. And you mentioned about disruption. Can you tell more how to uh, thrive on disruption, and uh, any insights about using uh, disruption in the right way?
0: Yeah. So, um, so, so great, great question. And you know, when we talk about um, uh, disruption, it 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 happens in a in a number of ways, but oftentimes it is. It happens when um, the things change in the external environment, and and companies don't adapt. And one of the, um, I, I guess, one of the seminal examples um, that Clayton Christensen used all the time, and I'll use it here just because it's such a fantastic example, is the is the is the steel industry. Um, where you had these uh, upstarts using a new technology um, in these in these mini mills, and the new technology started out, it was inferior to the the big steel mills, the uh, companies like U.S. Steel and Bethlehem Steel, steel. Um, and so. It was really only used at the low end of the market, so for rebar and things like that. And what happens is the when a disruption comes, the existing um, businesses, and you see this, it's it's happening today. And I'll get to some examples of where this is happening today. They go the businesses go up market. They, they, they go for higher margin opportunities and they say, okay, uh, upstart, if you want to go to the low end of the market, go ahead, you can have it. And that's what they did with, that's what US Steel and the others did with companies like Nucor. And, uh, and what happened was, um, because these upstarts had to make money at the low end of the market, they innovated new ways of uh, processing steel that were less costly and more efficient. And once they saturated the low end of the market, they started moving upstream, and eventually competing directly with the incumbents. and And in some cases, overcoming them. And when we we think of disruption, we think of, you know, you know, Blockbuster and Borders Books and Toys R Us that that went out of business. And and yes, those are dramatic examples of disruption. But more more often than not, it's that's not what happens. the, the businesses, the incumbent businesses, just become damaged, and they don't grow as fast, um, they drop out of the Fortune 500, or they end up getting purchased uh, by, by another company. And all of this is, is known, this pattern of disruption is known. But it is extremely difficult for companies to combat it. Um, let's take a look right now. Let's uh, about the um, one of the industries that I'm very familiar with, and everyone uses package delivery. Okay, um, so chances are over the holidays, you got a lot of deliveries. <laughs> From uh, from you know different retail stores. Um, five years ago, those deliveries would have been coming all from UPS and FedEx. I'll bet that's not what happened this year. This year, you had Amazon trucks, you had a variety of gig drivers delivering um, to your door, um, and. And what has happened is, you know, some of the incumbent companies have been following a, you know, we're going to take our limited assets and we're going to move them up market where we can get a better return on our assets. And that makes perfect sense. Absolute perfect sense with one exception. When you leave the low end of the market, others are going to innovate there. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of disruption in logistics right now because at the beginning of the pandemic, the, um, the kind of incumbent carriers limited capacity, took their limited capacity and, and, and moved it up market And retailers were looking at, okay, what am I going to do? I've got to get goods. E market is e commerce is going through the roof. What am I going to do? And so they uh, they started innovating. They started uh, creating their own delivery networks using gig drivers and using their stores as warehouses. It's something they could have done all along, but they were kind of forced into it. And, and that is, um, you know, one of, the, one of the times, one of the, the great things about hardship, which we all went through uh, during the pandemic, is it spawns innovation. And that's exactly what happened. And now that the pandemic it's still with us, but it is the impact on the supply chain has uh, you know is has has lessened enormously. Um, but what you're finding is all of these companies are leaning into logistics now. and so now um, Walmart not only, delivers a lot of their e-commerce from stores using gig workers but they've started their own delivery service um the gap has done the same thing they offer a third-party delivery service Um, target same thing and now these incumbents um that decided to seed the low end of the market now have very powerful competitors, in the name of uh, Amazon, Walmart, Target, um, American Eagle Outfitters has a competing uh, unit as well. The Gap does Gap Logistics, and so that's an example of how you know this idea of disruption, where you the incumbent seeds the low end of the market. Um, is happening today um in real time
1: yeah nice nice uh, you know i'm waiting then uh my new uh, uh when i get uh some packages with drones you know when will <laughs> drone will knock to my door you know and tell please sign <laughs> to take this package <laughs> so yeah i think this time will come because technologies are coming fast to disrupt what we you know, our habits <laughs> and uh, Alan, uh, give me a strong reason to read your book and uh, for my audience. You know, uh, le- let me tell you why I'm asking about that. For example, you know, when I read uh, books from Jack London or many other authors, you know, uh, you know, I can feel that I'm part of the journey. You know, I can forget about meal, about water, about sleep, about anything. Because I'm on this book, you know, my mind is uh, another place, you know, uh, on this adventure. Uh, But I found that many business books are good for sleeping. You know, when you read these books, uh, if you have problems with sleeping, you can sleep well the whole night, you know, and, and yeah, it's hard to remember anything from this book. So tell. What kind of value can I get and my audience can get by reading your book? What kind of benefits can you provide on your book that it's important today to consider uh, to disrupt the industry or uh, technologies that we have?
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and and so um, I guess I guess I'll start with the way I wrote this book is. Um, is how I find that myself and most people read business books. You you pick up a business book because you have a problem or because you have a specific challenge, right? Um, that's what's driving you to uh, to pick up a business book. And so while you while you can read organizational velocity. Um, from cover to cover, I wrote it in a way that you can hone in on what your challenges are and get right to it. Um, So for example, um, the the big takeaways in the book are, are uncovering what are the hidden sources of friction That I found in in all of my research over five years, what are the hidden sources of friction uh, that you should be aware of in your company? It could be, and oftentimes it's not things that people just think of. So let me give you an example. Um the what what do you set as spending thresholds? for your executives, for different levels of executives. And that might seem trivial. But in fact, it's not trivial. And I'll tell you why. If you have two companies with two different vice presidents, let's say, at the same level, with the same level of responsibility, but one has a higher spending authority than the other they're going to be more successful. Why? Because the one with lower spending authority, in order to execute their plans, is going to have to go through the committee approval merry-go-round. Right? They're going to have to go sing for their supper. So they're going to have to get their teams together and go to some committee uh, to get approval for funding. And oftentimes, it's not just one committee; it's several committees. Um, and oftentimes, you may not get approval at the same time. So, it may take you just through the administration another six months to execute a project. And if it's a if it's a, a project that's trying to take advantage of a uh, a specific opportunity in the market, six months could make all the difference between success and failure. So little things like that. The other thing is, so once you kind of uncover the the challenges in your organization, what do you do? And so I talk about that. I really start at the beginning around kind of the mindset you need for success. Um, And then I go into, so what does that look like in terms of structure? What does that look like in terms of the leadership kind of skills that you need? What does that look like in terms of how you interact with your senior executives and your board of directors? and so that you can actually execute um and i guess the the other thing in terms of making it easy as i was doing my research people would say something i would hear something and i would think oh my gosh that's a truth bomb or that's a that's a gold nugget i've got to i i've got to capture that and you know in in my um, in my book, I like highlight these truth bombs and gold nuggets. And for example, a truth bomb. Let me just grab one. Um, uh, truth bomb number eleven: In the absence of data, bullies and bullshitters always win. Right? <laughs> so that's that's a that's a truth bomb. That's universal in every every organization. A gold nugget that someone told me was, it's not about sharpening the knife. Every every organization talks about sharpening the knife. It's not about sharpening the knife. It's about creating new knives. And what is meant by that is that this idea of sustainable competitive advantage, has been around since the 1980s. It's outdated. It's not true anymore. Um, Because new thinking and connecting technologies have allowed companies to cross industry moats with increasing ease. And you can talk about your competitive moat, and I don't care how wide you, you create it. Um, you are going to have competitors. The only lasting competitive advantages um, is is um, is in recreating advantages, creating new advantages, um, and that's what that's what this book is all about. And if you if you read through at the at the back of the book, you read through these um, gold nuggets. They're all tied to a page number in the book, so you can go right to that part in the book and say, "Okay, this is really what I need to understand." Um, and the other thing that I did is at the end of every chapter, I I summarized the key learnings into three categories: what, so what, and what now. So right. And, and, and it's like, this is what you want, in, in a at least what I want in a business book. I don't want to have to search for the answers. I don't want to have to read 100 pages of your stories that don't pertain to me um, in order to get my gold nugget, to get the learning that I want out of this. Um, and so I tried to make it uh, really easy that way. And so um, my goal in, in, in doing this writing is that, you know, I, um, I want to make it easy for, for leaders to absorb this five years of learning um, that I, that I put into the book and and then be able to leverage it with their teams because you know, I've always, I've always thought that one of the greatest lies that is told in business is that uh, it's not personal, The business isn't personal. And that's that's just BS. It's just not true. Business is personal. And so when you're making decisions um, that negatively impact the people in your organization, Believe me, it's personal to them, and they're taking it home with them, and it makes it personal to their families. Um, and so, if I can help, you know, c- these leaders peel back the onion and see some of the the challenges and ways of overcoming those challenges, um, that's really what I wanted to accomplish.
1: Nice, valuable, valuable, guys. I'm going to to buy this book now to put on my list because on my Amazon Kindle, I have a huge list of books that uh, I need to read. So it's uh, on my list because I'm going to learn more about that. I love it. And Alan, I have the question about common mistakes. Can you list common mistakes that companies still do and how to find a much better way today?
0: Yes. Yeah, so the um, the I would say the biggest uh, challenge that companies have is um, is creating a true learning environment, and uh, and and a lot of things get in the way of that. But let me give you an example that I think is pretty concrete. Um, so one of the companies I interviewed was not a company that you'd think of as you know, cutting edge. Um, the company is Shaw Industries, and they make carpet um, and a variety of other flooring uh, products. And I was talking to one of their executives, and he was relating a, a story to me when he originally got in his role And they had made a decision that turned out to be wrong. And um, so he said, oh my gosh, I just got into this position. Um, The company has committed so much money to us. What am I going to do? Am I going to tell them we made a mistake? And he he decided, you know what? I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm going to tell them we made a mistake. And, um, and here's what we need to do to correct it. And, um, and so he goes in front of the executives. He tells the story. He does his mea culpa. And the, the, one of the senior vice presidents looks at him and says, OK, you've paid the tuition. Now, what did we learn? And that is, is, is why Shaw Industries is so successful. They didn't try to kill the messenger. They didn't try to point the finger around who did what and who needs to be, um, you know, burnt at the stake. It was what did we learn? And 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 that is um, and that is the essence of a of a learning company because you know. When people say you know fail fast, the reality is if you fail fast o- long enough, you're gonna fail, right? Um, it's not about failing. However, if you um, if the project wasn't successful, but you learned something that then propelled your next action. It wasn't a failure. That's not a failure. That's a learning. And so, um, you know, companies need to get much, much better at being um, open to to learning and and taking calculated chances. And um, and and you know and and not um Not allowing themselves to stick to a plan that they know is going off course, just because they don't want to go back and ask for forgiveness or say they were wrong—that's ego, right? They need to yeah. put check their ego at the at the door and do what's right for the company.
1: Nice, nice, valuable. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I remember when uh, Elon Musk shared about failure. He told, if you don't fail, you are not innovative enough. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal once replied to this question about failing. And he told that when he starts something new, he always fails. But it's not failure, uh, as you mentioned. He told it's education. No, because you start uh, from generic methods, then you need to fail. Uh, to get new skills through experience and its education know how you can go ahead without education, but you can get education in different format, in different way through experience. Then you can adapt, as you mentioned, uh, test and find something else to go ahead. I agree completely with that, Alan. It's a big pleasure. Uh, uh, I have the question. Let's imagine you started from scratch. Without experience in UPS, many different companies, you didn't write a book. What will you do today to learn more about disruption?
0: Yeah, so um, I, I, I must tell you, it is a, a continuous learning journey. And, um, and I start my day early. And um, I spend the first few hours of every day um, discovering, reading, discovering, uh, following—you um, know—different areas of research that I'm very interested in. Um, you know, and 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 right now, one of the, for example, one of the areas that I'm focused on right now is around the, you know, how we how we uh, survive geopolitical conflicts from a. Supply chain standpoint, and and so I'm I'm challenging conventional wisdom around uh, the way supply chains are formed, and um and you know one of the things that I'm really intent on is you know the uh, the amount of goods that are manufactured in China or have their um, you know. Have supply chains that are tied to China, which are actually most supply chains, right? Um, and what happens if you know the, the kind of the 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 challenges that we're seeing escalate, and or 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 China invades Taiwan, which we know that they've stated they're going to do, but. Um, you know, would they, if they do that at some point, what would the U.S. do since our military, our healthcare, our IT supply chains are all tied to those countries? Um, and, um, and so a, a popular answer right now is, oh, we're going to move to Southeast Asia. We're going to move production to Vietnam. And, and, um, and so my challenge is, um well let's take the Vietnam test, what I call the Vietnam test. And the Vietnam test is if we did enter if we were in a cold war, a new cold war, and countries had to choose between China and oh look at that. If if countries needed to choose between China and the US, where would Vietnam land? And um, and so those are open-ended questions, and uh, that I'm that I'm trying to discover. Um, and the other area that I'm really focused on is that this whole last mile supply chain and returns, because we're seeing returns just explode, and they're not only a big cost issue, um, but they're a huge environmental issue. Six billion pounds of returns end up in landfills every year. Uh, we can't continue that. So, um, so my, uh, my discovery continues every day.
1: Yeah, you know, guys, uh, I submit links uh, to the description below, to LinkedIn profile, to your personal website, because I like the quote on your website. Today, the only competitive advantage is to learn and react faster then you competitor constantly at all times. I agree 100%, you know, yeah, love this quote. till uh, the best way how to reach out to you, how to learn more about you, how to follow you.
0: Yeah, so the uh, the best way you can, you can reach out to me uh, at my website, alan, uh, alanamling.com, um, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's my social media of choice
1: okay guys you can find a website linkedin profile in the description below listen us on apple google spotify thanks again for your time a big pleasure uh i'm going to read your book guys you need to read this book because you can see a lot of valuable insights okay guys love you see you